Good morning, church. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. I, I can't get away from those words. Uh, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away in Christ alone. Um, I can count probably on one hand the opportunity that I've had to just be a part of worship in the last, I don't know, decade, maybe a little less than that. Um, such a joy to be able just to be led in worship. Thank you, guys. Um, for those of you who might not know who I am, my name is Evan Wilson. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, good to meet you. Uh, I am not the, the lead pastor, and I am, you, you may say, an amateur speaker, amateur preacher, as you can see with the uh, mic little debacle there. Um, so I'll warn you, I don't have any sermon notes for you this morning, no little fancy fill in the blanks. Um, I don't even have three points. So if, if you decide to get up and walk out, please don't, but I understand. Uh, but I do want to share with you a little bit of my background, my story, and um, how God has led me and taught me along the way. Several of you may know I grew up in a small town called Winona, Mississippi. If you don't know where that is, you've probably passed through it at some point, maybe even stopped to get some gas or a McDonald's burger. Uh, it's right in the smack dab middle, or at least I think, in, in, in Mississippi. Um, I, as a child, uh, growing up, I kind of saw it as like the bejeweled, bedazzled belt buckle of the Bible belt, right in the middle of Mississippi. Um, I was blessed. My parents from birth uh, pointed me to Jesus. I was always introduced to Jesus, never knew a time um, apart from Jesus. I grew up, or I attended preschool at, a, uh, at the Methodist church there, or at least one of them, uh, Moore Memorial Methodist Church. That's where I uh, went to preschool. Grew up attending First Baptist Church, Winona. Um, every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Evan Wilson was going to be there, um, probably running around like my little uh, ones do, but um, I was there. I, I wore itchy pastel clothing on Easter. Um, I was in the children's choir every Christmas. Um, you better believe it. I was a part of the Royal Ambassadors. Anybody remember Royal Ambassadors, RAs? I think that's still around, but um, I was there, Bible drill. I wasn't always the most willing or eager participant in Bible drill, but I was there. Uh, my parents were Sunday school teachers. Uh, they taught me a lot about Christianity, uh, a lot about Jesus. They taught me to pray every night. Uh, they taught me to pray before every single meal. Um, and so everything I did, everywhere I turned, my entire life was just drenched and surrounded by Jesus and the Bible and Christianity. I didn't know, any, didn't know anything different. And so it should come as no surprise to you that I made the decision to follow Jesus at a very young age. I was baptized there at First Baptist Winona uh, on my seventh birthday. Uh, that's when I was baptized. And I knew at that time that who I was, how I acted, uh, and who God wanted me to be were not the same person and that I needed forgiveness for that. And so on my seventh birthday, I trusted that Jesus could provide that forgiveness. And from there, uh, my walk with Christ has been precisely that. It was like a walk that I started or a long journey that I started with a stranger. And along the way, we talked, got to know each other a little bit better. 
Um, I listened a little more along the way, uh, still learning that process, by the way. Uh, but the more I learn about Jesus, the more I love Jesus. Um, I'm sure I wouldn't be wrong to assume that that may sound like a lot of your stories here this morning. In fact, I have heard and read several stories uh, that are almost identical to mine, stories of people who all their life, uh, again, surrounded by Christianity, surrounded by church life, uh, and then there was a moment when they met Jesus and everything changed, right? Meeting Jesus makes a difference. In fact, I want us to read about a man who had this exact experience and see what we might take away from this encounter with Jesus. So look with me, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now right off the bat, I want us to remember what it means to be a Pharisee. Pharisees were not, as we say, church leaders. Nicodemus was different. He was a ruler of the Jews, which most agree that that meant he was a part of the Sanhedrin. If you think about um, the Supreme Court and the Senate, kind of combine those together, you'll get something close to the Sanhedrin. Uh, however, just being a Pharisee didn't mean you had any kind of official office in the church or any inherent religious authority. Uh, remember Paul or Saul of Tarsus, he was a Pharisee, but he still had to request permission from the chief priests to carry out all of his um, actions against the early church. And so, Pharisees were, you might say, normal, everyday Jews who wanted to do everything they could to ensure Israel's holy and set-apart status. They pledged to abide by every command in their scripture, which at the time was the Old Testament. They found 613 commands. 613 commands. That's 248 do's and 365 don'ts. And as if 613 wasn't enough, they developed their own um, additional laws so that uh, it, they could safeguard themselves from ever com uh, committing any crime against God's law. Or so they thought. Many, many refer to this as the hedge around the law, a safeguard, uh, so that they would not commit anything against God. For instance, in order to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, in order to rest on the seventh day, uh, they painstakingly defined what it meant to work. Um, they, they considered it work for a man to tie a knot in rope, right? Tying a knot in rope, better not, you can do that any day but the Sabbath. It was not work, however, for a woman to tie her clothing, okay? And so, what would happen was a man could not tie a rope around a jar on the Sabbath, but a woman could tie her clothing around a jar to fetch water on the Sabbath. That wasn't work. So that was, that was the hedge around the law. That's how that worked um, at that time. Um, now, why did they do this? Why did, why did they, why did they uh, try to abide by all these laws? The Pharisees believed um, that Israel's purity, they felt that if they kept the law in its complete entirety, Israel would be pure. And Israel's purity was the condition that God demanded in order to send his liberator or Messiah in order to restore Israel's independence and superiority over the surrounding nations. That was, that was their goal. And so for the Pharisees, track with me here, for the Pharisees, 
The establishment of the kingdom of God. We've heard that phrase before, right? The establishment of the kingdom of God meant that Israel, as a nation, had a king sitting on the throne like that of David, and that king ruled over a free, independent, superior nation. That king led them into peace and prosperity, and that's for them what God had promised, so they thought. So Pharisees were not terrorists. They were not gangsters. In fact, they were upstanding citizens. They were, uh, you might even say they were patriots. They were, um, if your child became a Pharisee, you'd be so proud, so proud of your child. My child's a Pharisee. Um, Out of all the Jews, they were the most zealous for God's word and law. Now listen, Pharisees had plenty of flaws. We know that. We read about that in the Gospels. Um, Jesus points out those flaws. However, above all, the Pharisees just wanted to do the right thing. They just wanted to please God. And so when I think about the Pharisees, I think about my own life. Think about maybe the temptations I might have as someone who grew up the way that I did. You want to know the biggest threat for a person like me? The biggest threat for the faith of a person like me? Um, I like to think of it as the delicious poison for a child who grew up praying, church going, singing about Noah's Ark. You fill in the blank. You guys know that, that story. It is not atheism because I cannot imagine or I cannot fathom there being a universe that we have without a creator God. I can't fathom it. I, don't, I just don't know how. I can hear the arguments all day and they just don't convince me. It's not agnosticism, because I read about and heard about um, how God treats lukewarm Christians, vomits them out of his mouth, and I'm not going to be that. I'm hot or cold. It's not agnosticism. It's not even other religions or false doctrines, because remember, I was steeped in the Christian tradition growing up. Um, I kind of had a sense for, for what was biblical and what was not. So for me, the biggest threat to my faith wasn't the temptation to leave my faith. For me, the biggest threat for my faith was cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. What is cultural Christianity? I think maybe many of us in the room might have an idea of what cultural Christianity is. Let me give you a few definitions. Cultural Christianity is wanting to be a part of Christianity more than wanting to be a part of Christ. That's one. Cultural Christianity is also allowing your life to be shaped and formed by the words and actions of Christians more than letting your life being shaped by the words of Christ. I think of cultural Christianity as the lazy river of the Bible Belt. The lazy river of the Bible Belt. It's just, if you just sit back, relax, fit in, that's where the tide takes you. Cultural Christianity. Now, when people hear the term cultural Christian, I think there may be a lot of different ideas about what that is um, or who that person is. Uh, Here's often what what people think when they hear cultural Christian. Someone who thinks God's main concern is the United States of America um, and can't separate their Christianity or Christian beliefs from politics and patriotism. That may be one definition. Another definition of a cultural Christian is Someone who is a part of Sunday morning worship, like we are now, um, leaves Sunday morning worship and all but cusses out their waiter or waitress at Sunday lunch. 
that might be another definition of a cultural Christian. Uh, or this might be one, someone who knows, deeply knows the lines that they are not to cross. We will not cross these lines, but it's okay to skirt up right against those lines as long as, long as we don't cross them, right? Listen, church, this is pharisaical behavior, should be called out for what it is and avoided at all costs. But that's not, for me, the cultural Christianity that crept into my life. That wasn't it. I didn't, I didn't have the temptation to go there. Um, for me, it was something totally different. So, probably know, I'm a musician. Um, growing up, and maybe a little bit now, I guess, um, I had a little bit of that emo, punk rock kind of... Um, spirit in me, and I wanted to rebel and be different, but also wanted to be a Christian too, so there was a little bit of a, of a struggle there. Um, and I also began to notice the cultural Christians around me, and I didn't want to be that. Um, I wanted something, uh, I desired something that was real and powerful. That's what I wanted um, from Christianity, from Christ. And so this led me to fall in love with uh, contemporary Christian music, um, something that I call worship culture. Uh, worship culture, you may not know what that is, uh, and th but this type of culture isn't necessarily bad in and of itself. It's not, it's not the culture that's bad, um, but it can easily become an idol, like it did for me. It can become an idol. Um, so this is nothing new. Since the birth of the church, there's always been some kind of evolving uh, Christian culture um, as the times went on. There's always been some form of Christian culture. And for me, I saw popular worship leaders uh, just having the time of their lives leading worship, um, saying some of the most powerful, thoughtful, um, thought-provoking things. And I thought, that's what I want. That's the kind of Christianity I want. And so, of course, I began to dress like them, act like them, talk like them, um, which, let me emphasize, is not bad, okay? That culture is not bad. There's Christian culture that is good and can be beneficial. However, the problem was this. Here was the problem, okay? Without fully realizing it, I think this is where the Pharisees found themselves, without fully realizing it, I was okay with not actually following Jesus as long as I was perceived to be a part of this Christian culture. Does that make sense? Um, I was okay if I wasn't spending meaningful time with God, if I wasn't accountable to other Christian believers, if I wasn't loving others through serving, and if I wasn't telling others about Jesus. I was okay, really, if I, if I didn't do those things or if my life didn't display that, as long as I could be associated with some kind of popular Christian culture. And so I looked the part, I acted the part, but there was a disconnect between the way that I looked, the way that I behaved, and then the true condition of my heart. I was a Pharisee. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there today. Um, maybe your desire to be a part of a certain culture or group has diminished your desire to know Jesus and walk with him wherever that leads. And this fork in the road is exactly where we find Nicodemus. And so let's pick up this story right here in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember what that would have meant for Nicodemus, the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is trying to wrap his mind around this. He knew there has to be something to Jesus' words. Uh, He comes to him. He's trying to figure this out, but they weren't exactly lining up with what he had always been taught and what he had always believed. He He and the rest of the Pharisees, they were looking for a political liberator, and Jesus was not that at all. He was something more, which is why he answers the way that he does in verse 5. He said, uh, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay, so it's easy for us to miss out on what Jesus is saying here because we don't necessarily pour over uh, the Old Testament prophets like the ancient Jews did. But when Jesus associates water and spirit, Nicodemus would have immediately recognized that word association. It would be as if I said uh, water and wine. Most people in the room are going to think about the story in John 2, the wedding at Cana, when Jesus turned the water to wine. Or if I said five loaves of bread and two fish, I mean, there's not a person in the room who's not thinking of the time Jesus fed the 5,000, right? So when Jesus says one must be born of water and spirit, here's what would have come to Nicodemus's mind. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about a spiritual birth here. I know that's what you're thinking. I'm talking about a, I'm I'm not talking about a physical birth, excuse me. I'm talking about a spiritual birth, uh, which is an awakening. An awakening to the truth of God's word, why it was written, and what it's pointing to. Jesus continues, look with me in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must uh, be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Uh, What's Jesus talking about here? I live in um, the Joiner neighborhood in Tupelo. Um, Many of you probably know where that is. If you don't, that's okay. Um, And I I haven't been there. Uh, I've only been there three years. Um, But many of you in this room will remember um, the tornado that came through the Joiner neighborhood in 2014. Um, So our neighborhood is a a popular running route. uh, And I like to run too, so I'll run through my neighborhood a good bit. When I walk out of my front door, and I'm going to go on a run. I'm surrounded by tall trees, uh, old trees. You just about can't see the sky for all the trees on my end of the neighborhood, but it doesn't take long. I start running down the road, and there's a certain point where there is a stark boundary, and behind me is, is the jungle, and in front of me is the desert. There is not a tree in sight. Not a tree in sight. 
And so the contrast between my end of the neighborhood and the other end of the neighborhood is what we can call unmistakable evidence that a tornado passed through that, that way. Jesus says to be born of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. But there is a sound. There is unmistakable evidence that it's there. So what is this unmistakable evidence? I think it can be several things. Um, I, think it, I think you could come up with a really long list. However, I think a born-again b- uh, believer will display at least these five qualities. So here are five things, five unmistakable evidences. Number one is a life of repentance. John Calvin wrote that repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. So when the Holy Spirit shows us the repulsiveness of our sin, shows us the kindness that God shows in redeeming us, we don't want any part of that sin anymore. That's repentance. That doesn't mean we're never tempted, um, but it does mean that we are never again okay with living in sin. Life of repentance. Number two is an eternal mindset. Eternal mindset. T.D. Alexander wrote, Faith in the resurrected Son of God gives us the confidence to trust that this life is but a prelude to something more wonderful. So the stresses and worries of this life, they lose their effectiveness when we have an eternal mindset. I love what Dean and Sarah says, if I'm saying his name right. He says, Christians don't believe the lie that there is more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying God. Um, So without Christ, we're trying to squeeze everything we can out of this this life, this brief temporary state. We're just trying to get everything we can out of it. We're not going to let it go. But with Christ, knowing Christ, having that eternal mindset, we know that all of the joy and purpose that we experience in this life is it's just a glimpse, like just, just like a prelude to the life that's to come. And all of the sorrow and pain that we experience, not worth worrying about because we've got, we've got an eternal home ahead of us. Eternal mindset. Number three is a desire to know and apply God's word. To know and apply God's word. Listen, if we have the very written word of the God of the universe at our disposal, how can we be casual about it? How can we be casual about about God's Word? God is the most interesting and exciting thing in existence. He has revealed Himself to us, revealed His desire for us in His Word. The cultural Christian takes that for granted. Of course, it's the Bible. We have God's Word. The born-again believer says, I want to know what God said. I want to live by what God said. The born-again believer reads God's word, reveres God's word, and returns to God's word. Desire to know and apply God's word. Number four is generosity. Generosity. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I know that my heart is far from Christ whenever I'm not living generously. And that's generosity with my money, But it's also generosity with my time, my energy, my attention, my care and concern. Anything that I might hoard to myself because that is what pleases me most. 
That's not when I'm closest to Christ. When I'm closest to Christ is when I'm living for the good of those around me. Generosity. And then number five is a heart for the lost. So one who is in Christ, a born-again believer, one who is born of the Spirit, knows personally, has experienced the grace of God. And when we look out and we see those wrapped up in all kinds of evil and sin and falsehood, it should evoke in us compassion. I'm reminded of the famous words of Penn Jillette. Uh, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure most of us in this room have heard this quote before, but Penn Jillette said this, if you believe there is a heaven and a hell and you think it's not worth telling someone about, how much do you have to hate him to not proselytize? To believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell people? This man, he's talking about a man who shared his faith with him. This man cared enough about me to proselytize. So those are five things. Um, there, there may be more that can be unmistakable evidence of a spirit-filled life, but, but I firmly believe that these five things are countercultural, unmistakable evidence of a born-again believer. These are five things that you won't find in the lazy river. You won't find them in the lazy river. So this unmistakable evidence of the person born of the Spirit is amazing, not only because it provides for us joy and peace and purpose, but also because it is contagious. Contagious. This is exactly what Jesus says next. Look with me in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And we could all join in and quote this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's a somewhat odd story, or at least I think it's a little bit odd, in the book of Numbers um, that Jesus is using here to show how rebirth or how regeneration happens. And I want to I read it to you. This is Numbers chapter 21, and starting in verse 4. It says, From Mount Hor they sent out by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of, uh, many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So here, here Israel has come out of Egypt. They've seen and heard about the ten plagues that happened in Egypt. They've seen the Red Sea parted by God so that they can pass across safely. They've seen a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and yet they want to return to what is familiar, to what is comfortable, to what they, the former familiar way of life. And as a result, God disciplines his people by sending these serpents who bite everyone. And then he gives the instructions to fashion a bronze snake, which Moses does. And this snake, um, it represented their sin. It represented their rebellion, their grumbling, but it also represented their fate, what would happen to them apart from God saving them. And then God gave them the promise that whoever looked at it in faith, trusting God's words, would live. And this, Jesus says, is how we receive salvation. Uh, I'll read it again in verse 14, John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot, we cannot save ourselves. Salvation is not some kind of promotion that we earn or something that we convince God to do for us. That's not what salvation is. The truth is we rebelled against God like the people of Israel. We want, we want life on our terms. We rebelled against God and his design. And when we look at Jesus on the crucified cross, what we see, we see what we deserve for our rebellion which is death. We also see how God has provided a way for us to be redeemed. And so when we look at Jesus, recognizing our sin and rebellion, recognizing how unworthy of eternal life we are, and believing that Jesus is God's Son, sent to die in our place, resurrecting to prove His power over sin and death, what happens is, Miraculously and graciously, God gives us a new life, new birth, spirit-filled life. And when we put our faith in Jesus, God does exactly what he promised when he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, friends, don't keep living in this counterfeit cultural Christianity, if that's, where you, if that's where you feel like you are today, don't, don't settle for that. Don't settle for that. Christ offers so much more. There are, there are heights upon heights to be reached and depths of love and beauty that you can, you can only imagine and can only be experienced through following Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't want a life of pretending. 
I don't want a life of putting on a mask, a facade. I don't want a life of chasing after things that won't satisfy me. I want a life, a rich and full life, walking with Jesus and living how he designed me to live. So I ask you today, does your life display unmistakable evidence of your faith? Maybe you've known Jesus for a really long time, but you find yourself just kind of sitting back and relaxing in the lazy river. Maybe all you've ever known is the lazy river, and uh, you're realizing for the first time that you've been settling for a counterfeit uh, Christianity that just, just won't cut it. You want the real thing. Listen, friend, you can have it. It's freely offered to you. It's a gift. God will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and he can cause you to be truly born again. So I encourage you, look to Jesus this morning. He's raised up. Look to him. In just a moment, I'm going to be standing in the lobby along with um, our other pastors. And uh, if you want to talk about what it means to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, we're eager to talk to you. Also, this altar is open for you. If you just want to come and pray, you can do the same thing in your pew. Um, but you respond today however you feel led. Let's pray together. God, we love you so much.